You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am joined by Max Linsky from Longform. Hey there, man. Something's missing. It's, like, it's almost like uh, it's almost like Aaron's not here. Aaron's in Wisconsin. He's on a vision quest. Don't worry. He's going to come back more and better Aaron than he was when he left. Uh, you might be able to hear Reba, though. Reba's panting. It's hot in this room. Well, Dog can't handle it. Let's get this done. All right. Uh, who'd you talk to this week, man? I talked to Lewis Lapham. Lewis Lapham, uh, extraordinary life in magazines. He edited Harper's for uh, more than two decades. He uh, now uh, runs the Lapham's Quarterly, uh, which is a really cool journal. If you haven't checked it out, it's fantastic. Uh, and he's got a lot of stories. And he's got more stories than can be fit into a podcast of this length. That's what I discovered. He's a well-spoken man. He's a well-dressed man. <laughs> Incredibly well-dressed. Did you like up your game the day you interviewed him? I, the sad thing is that I sort of did. And then when he actually showed up, it showed how little I had upped my game because he was wearing uh, a really well-tailored suit. Yeah, the only option is just like black t-shirt, black pants, I think, when you're, <laughs> when you're interviewing him. This is how I was with Gay Talese. So it's like, what, what do you wear if you're going to uh, talk to Gay Talese? You're just going to look like a schmuck no matter what. So you'll find here that we, um, we covered a... A lot of different things. We there's a lot that we didn't get to, including his early life, which is very fascinating. So I, my guess is we'll probably want to have him back on. And there's a lot of ground, a lot of a lot of stories. Just before we get there, I'm going to tell you about our sponsor this week, Evan. It's a Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good people at Mailchimp. Uh, we thank them for their continued sponsorship. Aaron's probably off right now, just thinking of new ways that tiny letter could be described. I like to think that Aaron just in Wisconsin working on one incredible tiny letter. <laughs> Here's Evan and Lewis Lapham. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk first. I went over to, uh, you know, Melville House is right around the corner. I know. Yeah. And I went, I went over and bought this... Uh, this Beatles book that they uh, issued of yours a few years ago, which is, to me, it captures so much that I wanted to talk to you about in a sense, because it's a wonderful piece of writing. It's a, essentially a reprint from the Saturday Evening Post. Well, yes. But it also, it, it feels like it represents a kind of bygone era of this type of writing, where yeah. 
the premise of it is sort of like the Beatles are going to an ashram in India and your job is to figure out how close you can get. Right. And it seems very open-ended. Do you, do you remember much about how that, how the assignment came about? Yeah, I remember exactly how it came about. Yeah, how was that? Uh, the assignment came about, uh, I was having lunch with Otto Friedrich. Otto Friedrich was then the editor of the Saturday Evening Post. This is, I guess, 1967, 68. Mm-hmm. Friedrich was him, uh, a marvelous editor. And the, uh, he was himself an extraordinarily good writer and had written six or seven books of history. I had a contract with the Saturday Evening Post to write eight articles a year on a mutually agreed topic. So Otto and I are having lunch at, at a midtown restaurant. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you on a journey to the east. And <laughs> I assumed that he meant the Vietnam War, which uh-huh. was the, the great uh, magnet for journalism in, in the late 60s. But no, not at all. He, he found out that the Beatles were on their way to the ashram Transcendental Meditation, which was the discipline being taught by the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, was a very big deal in the United States. Many students at the University of California, both in Berkeley and in Los Angeles and in New York, were lining up to bring their gift of marigolds and have the mantra whispered into their ear. It was a very... The summer before had been the summer of love. The Beatles were the biggest names on earth. Make love, make war. It was that flower person phase of the 60s. Things turned abruptly bad in the following year, in 68, because that comes, then you have the march on in Washington, you have the death of Martin Luther King, and you have the election of Richard Nixon. And at this point, that was in the offing. And so... Friedrich said, this is the biggest story uh, going at the moment, and bone up on transcendental meditation, get to the ashram, get into the ashram, get to meet the Beatles if you can, and bring me back a good story. <laughs> but, uh, but there are a couple of things going on. One is that uh, every report in the world was trying to get into yeah. the same place at, at that time, because right. the Beatles going there represented this going mainstream and everything that was going to happen around that. Well, I took the time to establish my bona fides with the Maharishi's people in in, in the States, get a sense of what it was that the Maharishi was trying to teach. And then I went to, I went the long way to India. I went from New York, then I went to California Uh and made connection with other people that were uh, close to the Maharishi. And at that point, uh, the Maharishi was... he loved uh, important musicians, and, and he loved celebrity. And so it wasn't only the Beatles that were going to the ashram, it was also the Beach Boys, and the Beach Boys were was a big deal band. And, and so I hung out with the Beach Boys for you know four days and listened to them record songs. And, uh, and then I went up and talked to the people in, in, in Berkeley. And so I had all kinds of street cred. When, it, when I got to the ashram. <laughs> From the final piece, it seems like you were always approaching this with a relatively jaundiced uh, eye towards the what was being conveyed from the the yes. You were, yeah. you were uh, skeptical is probably an understatement. No, I was not trying to do a celebrity gossip piece about the, about the Beatles. 
I was interested in the phenomena of transcendental meditation because it was a craze in, in the States. And the, I got to Delhi and I took a cab to Rishikesh, which was about a little over 100 miles due north. It's on the banks of the far, the uh, northern bank of the Ganges River. So I, I walked out of the front door of the hotel, I hailed a cab, and I said, Rishikesh. <laughs> and the cab driver said, you, you go Beatles. I said, I go Beatles. <laughs> and so it took about eight hours because the, the, uh, there were tolls on the road at every three miles. Local farmers had erected a bamboo uh, barrier and a form of uh, extortion, but taxi ride was uh, cost only $10. Right, right. And and then I got to the base of the ashram. The ashram was a hill slopes up on the far side of of the Ganges, and the Ashram is halfway up the hill on a low summit. It was quite uh, bucolic. But at the bottom of the hill, there was a gate, and no press was allowed. But gradually, I managed to convince the guardian at the gate that I I was a serious student of the uh, transcendental meditation and that I was a devotee of the Maharishi's uh, I was then introduced to the Maharishi's main deputy, a monk named Raghavendra. And I spent another couple of days talking to Raghavendra, and finally I was approved. I had promised that I would not bug the Beatles and I would not pester them with for bits of gossip, which I didn't do because I really wasn't interested in it. It sounds like, if, from the piece, it sounds like you almost weren't that interested in the Beatles in general. Even I, I as wasn't. As I mean, I, I was, my, as far as I was, I, I liked their, what I knew of their music, but I was, I'd studied classical piano for a long time as, as, as in my 20s, and I also was very fond of jazz. Mm-hmm. The shift in musical taste, I, I was a little behind the curve. Uh, it, it, it wasn't that I didn't recognize the Beatles or, or look down on them. I, it just wasn't... Uh, my street at, at at the time, right? And anyway, the other stuff was, to my mind, so much more interesting. I mean, the attitude of the the uh, American uh, searchers after the soul. I mean, you know, people from Westchester County, people from Hollywood, poets from England. I mean, it was a, and then of course the occasional wandering celebrity. <laughs> it would come Mia Farrow back from. Uh, bad series of weeks with Frank Sinatra somewhere in Goa, and then came Marissa Berenson, who was the most beautiful fashion model of the period, often on the cover of Vogue magazine. And she'd been with Vogue doing a shoot with white tigers somewhere in, I don't know where, (laughs) but somewhere in India where the white tiger was still to be found. Donovan, who was another uh, well-known uh, singer. But anyway, gradually I worked my way into the confidence of Ragvenda. I was then a- assigned a small bungalow within the gates and given uh, freedom to come and go as, as I would, to, yeah. to listen to the Maharishi's lectures, to 
eat at the refectory table on the terrace. And uh, You're just sort of living there at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, I, I just lived there for about two weeks. And then uh, it was a little trouble toward the end. There was a rumor that the Maharishi had forced himself sexually upon a co-ed. The fact of the rumor was sufficient to alarm the uh, Beatles publicist. The Beatles were off limits for three weeks, taking a rest from fame and, and the constant attention of paparazzi. And here they were supposed to come into a clearing of spiritual peace and uh, purity. And, and the idea that the Maharishi might, in fact, be a uh, dirty old man was going to be very bad publicity. So the, I left with Ringo. Ringo and I shared a cab together, actually with Ringo and Marissa Berenson. Ringo seemed the least interested in the actual ideas. He, he wasn't interested made. in the idea at all. No, the McCartney pretty much the same way. Yeah, yeah. So you got it. You got out at yeah. some level. But I'm, I'm also I'm interested in it just in the sense of, uh, did you know that you came back with? the story you were looking for? Well, I, I never knew what I was going to find. I mean, I never... The, the, the way it worked with Friedrich and the Post is one never really knew what one was going to find. The idea was that this is a, an interesting place to go because it might turn into a good story. But, I mean, there was, there was no design in mind. I mean, I had never... I never presented them with a proposal and I'm, I'm going to go here and find this. I mean... One didn't know what you were going to find. So I, when I got back, I'd had lunch with Otto, and he said, well, what did you find out? And I told him, pr- pretty much just the way I explained it to you. And he said, well, write that. that that'll, that'll be interesting. So I did. And, and the, But it will always work like that with Friedrich. I mean, for example, I'll give you two uh-huh. ex- examples. It's either 1965 or 66. There was a big-time movie mogul named Joe Levine, and he had decided, or he'd been talked into, producing the greatest American musical comedy of all time. And he was doing this in partnership with a man named Dan Melnick and a guy named David Suskind. Suskind was an important talk show host and a media personality in the middle of the 60s. And, and they had found a script, words and lyrics by Eddie Lawrence, Music by Moose Charlap. It was the story of Hop Kelly jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge in 1880 as a form of social protest. This was a musical that had a message. The press agent uh, showed up in the Saturday Evening Post office and said, we're going to make such a great musical that we want a record of it, and we want you to assign a reporter from day one and stay with it until opening night. All doors open. Reporter can talk to anybody, the cast, the producer, the director. That was the kind of thing that Friedrich would pick for me to do. It turned out to be comedy. It was everything that could go wrong went wrong. It's kind of like Spider-Man. It was the same kind of idea. It cost an enormous amount of money in 1965, $65. And it opened and closed in one night. And it ended, up, it ended up that the star on the day of the opening night was suing the producers, and so were 
Eddie Lawrence and Moose Charlotte. It, it, it had everything you could dream of about show business. Did you have your access the whole time, or did they, did. Ever, no, they no, never no, cut no, it no, off? No, they never anything? cut it off. No, they never cut it off. It took it was three months from the first press agent stunt on the Brooklyn Bridge with dancing girls. In, in a, I was there the whole time. <laughs> but you never knew. You had no idea what it was going to turn out to be. I mean, there was never a set idea when it started out. <laughs> they were all like that. But another one was that Lyndon Johnson had just been elected in 1964 in his own right. Uh-huh. His first, his winning election yeah, as president. For, yeah. And Otto said, well, go down to Washington and find out what the world around Johnson is like. Because Kennedy, of course, had that biosphere of Camelot around him and mm-hmm. the, the footballs and the beautiful people and in New York and, and Hyannisport and Palm Beach and, and youthful romance, society girls, um, Jackie, and so on. I mean, that whole uh, mise-en-scene. And, and Otto said, simply said, find out if there is such a mise-en-scene around Johnson, and if so, of what does it consist? <laughs> that was the assignment? That's it. And in those days, of course, they were, they were, they were free with the expense account. I mean, the post sent me down to Washington, and I had a suite at the Hay Adams Hotel, and I stayed three months. <laughs> wow. I made myself temporary uh, member of the White House Press Corps, so I'd walk across the park in the morning, become a member of the White House Press Corps for the rest of the day, travel. When Johnson traveled to Austin, Texas, or when he traveled to somewhere in the Middle West because of a flood or to North Carolina for a flower festival. And so, again, I mean, I just wrote about the scene, which was, which was uh, of course, very different. I, Johnson was, his passion was, was, was politics, and the, uh, his relations with people were all uh, political and to an end, to a purpose. I mean, to get a particular bill through or to punish an enemy in the, in the um, Senate, obsessed with, with the uses of power. And so the people that were around him, they weren't there as social decoration. Uh-huh. But again, I came back with, with, with that kind of a story, and it, it, it largely turned out to be a story about how bad the White House press corps <laughs> Jesus, God. The, the, uh, the first day I got there, the Saturday Post was a big deal in, in the 1960s. In the year 1960, the Saturday Post and Life magazine were the major mainstream big media. Yeah. By the 1970, that all had passed to the television. Right. But in 1965, the Saturday Post is still a big deal, so I have no problem getting a credential to the White House, become a member of the press corps. And I said to the, the uh, press secretary at the time was a man named Joseph Reedy, a Texan, a very shrewd, entertaining, had a acerbic, ironic tone of mind, as any good press secretary must. And the, uh, I said, you know, Mr. Reedy, I'm here on assignment for the Saturday Evening Post, and uh, I'm only here once, and I'm not coming back. So as far as I'm concerned, nothing is off the record. And the... Uh, He's absolutely fine, he said, because he knew I was never going to get close enough to anything to make any difference. But 
So what? Fine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but it was not okay with the with the, with the White House press corps yeah. because that set me up or that put me in a position to uh, make a mockery of, of their uh, profession. So they made made it so that I had to get a new credential every day. What happened is that that over that period of three months. I got to see, particularly there was there was a Dominican crisis in the, I think it was in June, and um, as to why we intervened, Johnson told a different story, you know, every day. I mean, on Monday he would summon the press corps and give him this inside word about it was really you know why America was in the Dominican Republic. And that would be page one, and that would be the headlines for that day, the next day. He'd have another excuse, uh-huh. another reason. Uh, and of course, never told them the truth. But they, the thing is that they swallowed each one of them. I mean, they were like seals in, in, in the zoo. I mean, you'd, <laughs> and Johnson was just dropping the fish into, into their, you know, upturned mouths. And <laughs> that became a theme of, of the... Uh, of the piece that eventually appeared in the, the, about in the, the Saturday Evening Post. But again, but, I had no idea that that was going to happen, and neither did Friedrich. I mean, there there was no Camelot, but there was this, this entertaining uh, manipulation of the press by, by Johnson. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to uh, pause things with Lewis and Evan for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's GoDaddy. If you are starting a website, the first thing you need is a domain name. You know you want a .com. Everyone wants a .com unless, say, your website is called longform.org. But otherwise, you want a .com, and you can get one from GoDaddy for just $1.99. Put in the code FORM199 at checkout, and you'll get that .com domain name for just $1.99. Some limitations do apply. So see the website. That's GoDaddy.com for details. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Lewis and Evan. I asked someone uh, who works with you what kinds of things I should ask you. One of them was about uh, playing piano with Thelonious Monk. Oh, well, I was, again, it was a Saturday evening post. And again, it comes out of Friedrich. One of the... I said, you know, Otto, I'm interested in, in, in uh, Thelonious Monk. And he said, all right, do what you have to do. So I spent a lot of time uh, traipsing around. Monk is, you, one doesn't really traipse around with Monk because <laughs> Monk is a very off-putting, enigmatic, uh, stern um, figure. His sense of humor is sardonic and... and um, it, it, not easily approachable. Mm-hmm. But anyway, again, this is the kind of thing that takes time. I mean, I, I worked, uh, you know, he was playing down, he was playing in, in New York at a place called the Blue Note, and he was also, in those days, still making some recordings. So I'd go to the recording session, I'd go hang around at the Blue Note, finally got to talk to him a little bit. And at the time, I was still studying the piano very seriously. I had a Serious teacher up on the Upper West Side, and I was practicing the piano. I was not yet married, and I was practicing the piano at least two or three hours every day. And the um, and I told 
monk this. And, and, but one night he was playing down at the Blue Note and it, it, over at three o'clock in the morning, um, one of his patronesses was, and I can't remember this woman's last name, but her, she was a German baroness. And she's in a mink coat. She's a woman at that point somewhere in her 60s, and kind of faded German uh, aristocratic blonde, passionately interested in, in jazz and really knew it, really understood it. And so Monk said, I, I want to hear you play. So we get into the, into the roles. It's 3 o'clock, the Baroness, Thelonious, and myself. And he was living in a public housing behind Lincoln Center. It, it, you know, it was kind of brick block buildings. And he had a very small apartment on 8th or ninth floor, I can't remember. But it really was, it was just two rooms. And he had a new child. Um, his wife's name was Nellie. His wife was there, the child was in her lap, she was sitting on a couch, the Baroness came in, sat on the couch next to Nellie, and, and Monk said, now, play. Mm -hmm. And the way the apartment was set up, it was, a, it was a small baby grand piano, and it, but just behind the piano was the bathroom, which had a wooden door. And Monk was still wearing his hat, and, and the, he goes in the bathroom, because he's gonna sit on the toilet and listen to me play. <laughs> Now you got to remember, this is three o'clock in the morning, and I have—I haven't been drinking heavily at, at the Blue Note, but I have not been—I've uh, been doing my share of, of um, paying the piper by b buying a, a fairly steady series of, of uh, drinks. Uh -huh. But anyway, I sat down. I played Beethoven uh, Opus 90, which is a sonata in two movements, and it took 22 minutes. I didn't make a mistake. Um, I got all the way through, and Monk came out, and he said to me, I heard you. <laughs> now, that's all he said. There's many different ways to interpret that. You can interpret that as a very stern put-down, or you can, you can interpret it as a... Uh, meaning that I actually had some music in my soul. Which do you choose to, to believe? I chose the more favorable interpretation <laughs> and pretty much shortly thereafter gave up the piano. <laughs> that was the peak. That was a peak, right? I'm, you know, I'm interested yeah. how you, the transition from that, I know you started writing for Harper's and then you became editor of Harper's, which like a lot of our listeners will know both the careers that you sort of developed of editors there and, and all the writers over all those years. How did that transition happen from oh. being a writer to to editing Harper's? Well, it was, it was a mistake. I mean, it was a fluke. I, the Saturday Evening Post folded in 19, I believe, 68. It, it might have been 1969. I then went to Life magazine, and Life then folded very, very soon afterwards because the television is taking over the, the world. And so then I went to Harper's Magazine, uh, then being edited by Willie Morris, and proposed a story to him. I think it was 1970. British Petroleum had just paid the state of Alaska $800 million for 
drilling rights on the North Slope. Mm-hmm. $800 million in, in, or $900 million in 1969 was a, a lot. The money would, was all going to the state. What to do with the money was going to be the decision of, of the Alaska State Legislature. Uh-huh. And I said to Willie, I said, Willie, uh, he was in Lane's. I used to go to Lane's too. And I said, Willie, look, I'll go to Alaska and I'll stay for the entire session of the legislature in Juneau and see what they do with this. Because here's a chance for all of the dreams of uh, democratic government. There are no private interests. Money is in the hands of, of the, the servants of the people. What are they gonna do with it? And, and I, I went up and spent the, the whole winter session in Juneau and got to know everybody in, in, in both the, the lower and, and upper house in, in, in Juneau. He didn't say to you, good God, man, what is this going to cost? Like, how much, how much are you going to spend on this story to go stay for that period of time? Well, he did. I mean, the, the, the Post never asked that question. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, the Post one summer sent me up to cover the America's Cup races in Newport, Rhode Island, and they... You know, again, I was there for three months. They got me a house. They got me a boat. They got me a car. They got me a membership in the in the tennis casino. And so on. Harpers didn't have that kind of money. Uh-huh. On the other hand, it wasn't that expensive to stay in the Baronhof Hotel in Juneau. Was was not going to be a lot. And the um, my father at that point was a um, director of the Mobile Oil Company. Hmm. And the um, Mobile had a angle in, in, you know, had a hand in the North Slope pie. And the, so I got a ride up to Juneau on the, on the Mobile plane. So I didn't have a travel expense. Right, right, right. And I stayed there the whole, the whole time. So, I, I, so it, was, it, was, it wasn't a lot of money. It became, it, that, that was one of the problems, of course, uh, over time for Harper's Magazine because after I got to be editor, I, ne- I, I never had that kind of money. Right. I never had enough money to, to assign the, the kind of pieces that I used to do for the Post. But anyway, I, I wrote that piece. It, 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 again, it was a wonderful piece because you, I'm, I'm just there listening to these people talk. And essentially what they did, they, they were like Eskimos that had, you know, found a beach whale, and they just fell on it with flensing knives, <laughs> cut it up into pieces that were convenient to their own interests. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote that piece for Harper's, and the uh, and I'd only been in the office really once I, uh, to deliver the manuscript. Uh-huh. And then I was on assignment to write a second piece, which was about Wall Street, because the stock exchange was just beginning to be transferred to computers. Mm-hmm. And so again, I, I just spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people in, in, in Wall Street. But then in 1971, Willie Morris gets into a big argument with the then owner of Harvest Magazine, which was the Coles family in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Harper's Magazine was losing circulation, and Willie was blaming it on on the, the publisher in New York. It was the market. It was mm-hmm. the way the business was going, mm-hmm. and the uh, 
Coles asked that some changes be made, and and Willie was went out to a director's meeting in uh, Minneapolis and uh, struck the pose of an artist um, betrayed. Mm-hmm. And it was an attempted coup. Yeah, it failed. Coles accepted the resignation, came to New York three or four days later. I was by that time a contributing writer, um, as I had been at Life and as I had been at at, at, Harper, at uh, Saturday Evening Post. On the other hand, I'd only been in the office twice. Once that I had just the week before delivered the piece on Wall Street, Yeah, and I'd done the piece on Alaska. And, and I wasn't even supposed to go to the meeting. I mean, I, I, I found out about it at the, at the the last minute, so I went to the meeting. It was at 10 o'clock in the St. Regis Hotel. This is the meeting for the surviving editors. Uh-huh, to say, you know, what, what do we do now? To, to tell Coles that they also were going to resign I unless see. he did it, you know, which they all did, and the, uh, except for myself. I thought, what the hell? I mean, you know, I mean, I was interested in having a place to be a writer, so I, I liked the deal that I had at the Post and at life and uh, that I had at, at Harper's Magazine. I want to continue that. I, I didn't care really. I didn't agree with Willie, by the way. I mean, I, I, but I really didn't understand what the what the argument was about. And I said, uh, I had no intention. If, if you want to continue to run the magazine, Mr. Coles, I, I will continue to write for it. The other thing is that a couple of the other editors who did resign already had book contract. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, I, I become... So on, on, that was a Tuesday, I think, and on Wednesday, I, I'm suddenly managing editor pro tem. I'm the only person left in the office, except for the art director, Sheila, then Berger, now Wolf. She was a marvelous art director, and the two of us, you know, we, we were concerned for the health of the magazine. We didn't want to see the magazine get wrecked, and then a man named John Fisher, who had been the editor prior to Willie, uh, was in retirement in Guilford, Connecticut, which is very close to New Haven. He came out of retirement, and the two of us, uh, I, I suddenly became, overnight, an editor. I had no idea uh, you know, how to become, I had no intention of becoming an editor. Mm-hmm. So I agreed to do this uh, in a temporary way until they found a new editor. Uh-huh. And I assumed it was going to be Otto Friedrich because Otto, the post had gone down and Otto uh, needed to work for a living. And he was then, I, I still believe, far and away the best magazine editor I ever met. Uh-huh. And the uh, that didn't happen. Coles didn't offer the job to Otto. Otto then went on to Time Magazine, where he became an extremely fine editor for the next five or six years. And the the new guy they brought in was a man named Schneerson, Bob Schneerson. His son, Michael, writes for the Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. And Schneerson was from Time, and he had the kind of Time Magazine mentality. He didn't really like writers. And he was used to the, the culture that you know, at Time Magazine, everything gets rewritten three yeah. or four or five times, yeah. and the uh, and that's not the way it worked, and it certainly wasn't the way I was going to do it. 
But by that time, I'd gotten married. And the first time in my life I ever have an office or a secretary or ever wore a tie, I, I wore a tie on assignment when I had to, but I mean, not not, not to work. So I stayed at, as the editor uh-huh. because again, I, I could no longer take the time to travel. I was married and very soon uh, thereafter began to have children. And when, you were work, when I was working for the Post, I mean, you know, I'd be away from New York for six months of the year. Usually, yeah, yeah, you know? it sounds like it. And the um, I learned to be a managing editor, and I got to m- make make a lot of mistakes on Schneerson's watch, as it were. I mean, he was the editor. I knew that I didn't want to ever do it the way he did it, or the way Time Magazine did it. But mm-hmm. the still, I I got to learn. Schneerson then found himself in an argument with Coles, and I can't really remember what it was about. But he ended up out but the door. But he ended up out the door, and I had then ended up in 1975 as the editor. So so then, I mean, there's we don't have to cover the sort of period. You, there was a period where you left and a period where you came back. But overall, you were then, you know, running Harper's for 20, 26 years or something like that. Like Well, almost, but there was... <laughs> In 1970, I become the editor in 1975. Yeah. 1980, Coles decides to sell it because it's still losing a lot of money. It's taken over by the MacArthur Foundation in Chicago. And the MacArthur Foundation appoints a board of directors to run the magazine. None of them knew anything about the magazine business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they were investment bankers, philanthropists, academics. Ugh. And I had my first meeting with with that board, and I knew there was a question of not was I going to be fired. It was just a question of when. Yeah. And the uh, I was fired, and in the summer of '81, and then wrote occasional magazine pieces. Wrote. You know, wrote a column every other week for the Washington Post. Began to make a, you know, come up with an idea for a book. But then in 1983, I was rehired in yeah. Harper's Magazine by the young Rick MacArthur, who had was representing the MacArthur Foundation's interest in the magazine. So he asked me to come back, and I said I would on uh, on two conditions. One, I could redesign the magazine mm-hmm. because I already had the idea in mind as, as you know of the index and the readings and the annotation and so on one and two uh, that all the members of the board who had fired me be themselves fired <laughs> and to my surprise both those conditions were met so I went back to the magazine in uh, 1983 so I was there five years, 1970, 19, six years, 1970, 81, and then 83 to 2006. So it was a small interruption. I mean, it was, it was really known, uh, especially during that period, as a, as a writer's magazine. Yeah. And the list of writers that in that period, yeah. you know, Naomi Klein and David Foster Wallace yeah, and yeah. Barbara Ehrenreich. Yeah. Did you have a, a philosophy of editing? I had the same philosophy as Friedrich. I mean, I would just say, see what you can find out. I mean, tell me a story. And uh, I never tried to tell the writer what to do. I mean, I was interested in the writer's own voice. Mm-hmm. 
I was always interested in the first person singular. And when the writer turned in the manuscript, I could sometimes be helpful in the way that Friedrich had been helpful to me. He was like a coach, not a uh, headmaster. And, and the, uh, I tried to be the same kind of um, editor. And, but the best part of my job was to be able to come, up with, come across a manuscript. In those days, people would still send things. And you never knew what might show up. Or I'd read some, something that somebody I never heard of had written in another magazine. or Who knows? And, and the... Uh, come out of nowhere and somebody would send you a story and then you'd call him up and you'd say do you mind if we publish it and it would be you know be the person's first time he or she had ever published it that was the that was the exciting part of it I'd love to, to find new talent and the uh, do you remember any particular oh, I remember doing that with Andy Dillard yeah I can I did that with with her uh, yeah I did that with Andy Dillard I did that with a guy named Barry Lopez uh-huh um, Foster Wallace came through another editor named Charis Kahn, who was a great friend of Foster Wallace. She knew him. But again, when, as soon as I read it, I thought, this is magnificent. Right? I mean, it's just, I mean, when you get manuscripts coming in, I mean, it's, it, it, I always had the sense of, of opening a present and hoping to be both <laughs> delighted and surprised. Often that expectation was, uh, disappointed, uh-huh. but but when it was, it, it was it was a lot of fun, and 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 it, the word got around that I was that kind of a, an editor and, and willing to try almost anything if you could make it interesting. There's also, in addition to sort of nurturing writers and, and looking for new writers, you know, we've had editors on this podcast, Clara Jeffrey, Joel Lovell. Yeah, I mean the the editors that work in magazines now, so many of them came through. Harper's, and is yeah. that something you intentionally instituted or or tried to make happen, or did you feel like they just came flocked to you somehow? No, I mean, I always like to hire people who were young. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've done the same thing with Lapin's Quarterly, mm-hmm. right? So I tried to take an editor out of out of the intern pool or out of the you know intern become associate editor. I mean, because I'm drawn to the the energy and the enthusiasm of youth, right? I always assumed that they'd work for Harper's Magazine for a couple of years, and then they'd go elsewhere. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I took that as a given because I, if they were as talented as I thought they were, and then what I'd do when they became editors at Harper's, I'd give them as much freedom as possible, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, so they could develop. And I always assumed that they would then be hired by someplace else, and and the uh, it's the same because Harper's never had the kind of money that could have we we never could have paid salaries that you know the New Yorker, or the New York Times, or uh, Vanity Fair. I mean, we and it was the same thing with writers. I'd find writers the first time, and then New Yorker would come along and offer them a contract, and and the. Uh, I remember I I got uh, Hitchens to, to I started Hitchens off writing a column for from Washington from, uh-huh. from Harper's magazine for Harper's magazine, and I was paying him something like five thousand dollars a piece, four times a year, 
plus $5,000 expense. Uh-huh. I mean, the pathetic thing about journalism, Harper's Magazine in 1971 was paying $5,000 a piece. Yeah. And it's still paying that. Yeah. No regard for inflation. The, no, uh, no, no regard for inflation. Feature magazine rates. Did you, did you have a temptation to go at any point to to somewhere bigger or somewhere with more resources and feel like, uh, did you, did you want to no, kind of no, I didn't. move I out mean, of that? No, no, no. I was never offered that. I mean, if anybody had offered me that, I might have thought about it, but I, I never wanted to edit Time Magazine, for example, because mm-hmm. you didn't have the same kind of freedom. Yeah. And there's a, I, I, I found this, I came across this piece a while ago. There's a piece in the Christian Scientist Monitor from like, just trying to look up the date I wrote it down. It's like the early '90s, maybe. Yeah, it might even be no '85. Yeah, uh, that's sort of like a lament for long-form journalism. It's actually funny because it's like one of the first instances that someone refers to "quote unquote" long-form journalism yeah. that I've yeah. seen. And I'm curious in the arc of you know being at Harper's and then leaving Harper's and now with Lapham's Quarterly and you're doing something very particular. Do you have? Do you feel? Does that leave you with optimism about? where you know writing and letters are in society or has it been sort of like a downward pessimism that uh, continues to go in one direction because a lot of times when i read essays by you they have a sort of feeling of of loss and disappointment uh when it comes to writing and and culture well yeah but on the that's true on the other hand uh, i'm born in 1935 and and i i graduate from college in the 50s and in the 50s the idea of uh, literature as a saving art, mm-hmm. and that it enjoyed a, a, a rank in, in the society. All of that has moved into musicians or uh, movie stars. And the again, you had very serious film in in, in the fifties. I mean, it's. Fellini and it's Kurosawa and it's Truffaut and it's Ingemar Bergman, all of their stuff is coming out in the fifties. And the idea of film as 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 a real art form. And the same thing in theater. I mean, in the theater you have Arthur Miller and, and Tennessee Williams, UNESCO, are all it's all going on, on on Broadway. I mean, as a as a undergraduate at Yale in the 50s, I could come down to New York and uh, sit in the back of a apartment somewhere near Washington Square and listen to Auden talk. Mm-hmm. I could go over to you know, the bar on Hudson Street and watch Dylan Thomas drink himself to death. I could go up to Birdland and listen to Charlie Parker. I could go to the theater and... and uh, see the the crucible. I don't think we've lost an audience for good writing. I'm a great believer in in, in writing. I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in you can do things with the printed word that you can't with television. And I also think that the that reading on a screen or learning to read on the internet is a different kind of reading than you do when you sit down with a with a book. Right. Especially towards the end of your Harper's tenure. Yeah. I think it's now pretty pretty widely known that Rick MacArthur views the internet, uh, if not as a malevolent force, then yeah. it's sort of like a 
a, a degrading force to yeah. what yeah. what is happening with the magazine. And I'm curious what your outlook is. I mean, the quarterly is is pretty. You got some web savvy folks there, and, and oh, yeah, it absolutely. does a lot no. on the web. How do you view the internet? And I, I've read that you don't you don't really read things on the internet uh, per se. How do you view it in terms of its role in all this? I think it's a it's it's a uh, an asset. I I don't uh, I don't have any quarrel with the, the internet. I, I I think it's a different medium, and very good at what it does. And the uh, we have a website. We're building a, a new website, which we're going to make very good. Mm-hmm. Going to use it as a means, I hope, of of attracting readers and and subscription. We're, we're also. I mean, even now, I think we're. We're getting something like I can't be held to the numbers, but it's something like five hundred or six hundred subscribers a month over the internet. Mm-hmm. So that's wonderful, and it, 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 and the uh, I like to use the re, the the, the uh, internet for a, a resource. I mean, it, you know, to check something if I want to look something up, I I, I can. I don't trust Wikipedia, but I I can find <laughs> as a research engine the internet. I use that a lot. Yeah, I don't write on it because, again, I think you're. I'm I'm used to writing longhand. I I, I you actually, still write your essays longhand. Yeah, yeah, and I, I was good at the old Underwood typewriter when I was at the newspapers. But the uh, in that Beatles story, you you actually lug a typewriter. Yeah, I do. To India. Know, yeah, yeah, I do. But no, I I I think um, I I didn't share MacArthur's view of the internet at all, and don't now. I mean, we're trying to use the internet we're actually doing you know like again the internet the, maybe it's a different kind of a language i mean the it, you know it seems to be trending toward uh, the japanese haiku right <laughs> well thanks for taking out all this time i really appreciate it we probably covered uh, half of what i would want to so maybe we can get you on again whenever That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Uh, our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. She makes us sound much, much better than we do in the raw. And Destiny Johnson is our intern this week. Thanks to Lewis Lapham for coming over and speaking. I hope that he will do it again. We have a lot more to talk about. And uh, thanks to our sponsor, which is GoDaddy uh, this week. You can get uh, $1.99 domains. Uh, Remember, the promo code is FORM199 at checkout to get them. Uh, We'll be back next week, and we'll see you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.